Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, my guest is Aaron Cashton, author of the Eisner Award nominated Between Pen and Pixel, Comics Materiality, and the Book of the Future. Aaron is a university professor who shares a lot of his interesting thoughts on comics theory and the process of digitizing comics, how digital versus print comics work differently, and some uh, fascinating insights into some of the most prominent graphic novelists of our time. Please leave feedback for this podcast on iTunes or wherever you hear the show. Leave me feedback on Twitter at Jason Sachs and hope you enjoy the show this week. Welcome. Appreciate you joining me, Aaron. Uh, tell me about the uh, main thesis of Between Pen and Pixel. Okay, so Between Pen and Pixel begins by observing that there's all this debate nowadays about the future of the book and about what's going to happen to printed books in the digital age. Um, and there's been a lot of, of concern that the printed book is going to vanish and that we're going to do all, all our reading on screens, although that, that hasn't happened so far. Um, now, in academia, most of the discussion on this point focuses on prose books. And in between panel, pen and pixel, I argue that if we want to know what's going to happen to the book, we need to focus on comics and not on prose literature like novels or nonfiction books, um, prose, non, or prose nonfiction, I mean, because, um, because comics tend to make much – because the question of the future of the book is really about, about um, the academic term for it is materiality, what um, – what a particular medium of communication looks or feels or even smells or tastes like, mm -hmm. um, like just the sensuous experience of, of interacting with, with text or with media. Um, and it's much easier to study this if we think about comics rather than about printed books, because comics are typically a lot better at exploiting their own physical properties. So like if you, if you, if you take a book like let's say Moby Dick and you read it in a printed edition and then in a digital edition, it's kind of difficult to notice the way that those are two different experiences because it's the same text in either case. Normally you can take a book and, and um, reprint it or republish it in a new medium or, um, or, with, or with a new technology, and as long as the text is the same, it still feels like the same book. Whereas with comics, if you publish it in a different, edi in a different edition, like at a different page size or um, – even with different coloring or lettering, which has happened, which which happens fairly often, um, it just feels like a different reading experience. It doesn't even. It, it, it feels like still it, it's still the same comic, but 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 not quite. So, and I think that that, that we comics readers tend to become very sensitive to the, the material properties of books of, of comics and the way that those material properties change um, when they go when they move into it when they're translated into a different format. Um, a simple example is how when, old, when comics are published in trade paperback form, usually they get rid of the original advertisements and letters pages, and that, that really changes the experience. It feels like um, it, it, it feels like a different, it feels like a different sort of text. And then um, if you, and like, people nowadays have to choose between read, between, reading single issues or reading trade paperbacks or, re or reading comics digitally, those all have, have certain trade-offs. Like, like none of those, like none of these formats is clearly better, but they're all different. Does that make sense? Yeah, they are all different. It, so there's so many different layers to that. One is the way that the different ways of publishing a, a work will transform your perception of that work. Another is in the way that um, 
the work becomes distorted or changed based on how you're reading it. Um, and I think uh, the first the first example, though, you didn't touch on it, is uh, all the different publications of Watchmen, which uh, different size, different coloring scheme, um, different approach to that, um, and different uh, juxtaposition of the pages and images, each transform your perception of the work. Right, definitely. So, so, and it seems like the same. Te- and it seems like the same Watchmen in all these cases. But people who would have read Watchmen in the eighties um, as individual comic books would have had a very different experience from people reading it today in, um, you know, trade paperback or in, or in the absolute Watchmen edition or whatever. Um, yeah, and then another layer to that is how the the format actually how when when the format of a comic changes or when the format of comics changes, it can actually affect the content of comics, where it can have, or it can have other, it can have other significant effects. Like one story that just comes to, that just came to mind with Watchmen, it's, it's fairly well known that um, DC was going to that DC signed a contract with Moore and Gibbons where they would get back the rights to Watchmen as soon as it was out of print. And at the time, in 1986, it became, um, it, you know, comics basically always went out of after they were initially published, there was no expectation that comics would, would stay in print permanently. And Watchmen was actually one of the things that helped to change that, made the trade paperback sort of the dominant, um, a dominant form for, for distributing comics along with along with Watchmen. And, that, and the fact that Alan Moore never got the rights to Watchmen back has had a significant impact on, on his later career and on the later history of comics. So, so, um, so that's just an example of how format is not just a uh, how comics really help us think about format, about about form and materiality, and, and why they matter. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the exploration of Matt Kent's mind management and the differences he uses between the different formats. Yeah, so mind management is um, so I talk a lot about mind management in the book because it's an example of a comic that was specifically designed to take advantage of the comic book format. So uh, of the single issues. So, so Matt Kent had mostly been publishing his work in trade paperbacks before mind management, and so with mind management, he, speci- he he deliberately set out to give the reader all these bonuses that you would only get if you read the comic book. Like there are fake ads on the back covers that are um, that are not included in the trade paperbacks and they're based on things from the individual story. They're, they're based on things from the storyline. Um, there are these illustrations on the margins of the pages. There are, there are extra comic, there are extra comics pages on the in front, uh, on the inside front cover. Um, and the way I talk about it in the book is by saying that, um, in the current era, if you're going to publish a comic as a, as, a, um, as single issues and not as, um, as a trade paperback or a graphic novel, um, there, there kind of has to be a re- well. It's no longer the default. There, there might have to, you might need to have a specific reason for that. Because the reading experience is so tremendously different, um, I was especially intrigued by the way he talked about Bechdel's home, Fun Home and how the experience of reading it digitally is so different from the experience of reading it physically. Uh, and one is not necessarily better than the other, um, but they certainly are dissonant to each other. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And that was part of the um, the initial inspiration behind the project because um, people would talk about Fun Home as uh, Fun Home has gotten a lot of critical and scholarly attention. It's one of the most um, the comics that academics have written about the, uh, and scholars have written about the most. It's one of the most frequently taught comics, but there's been very little discussion of its material aspects of what of the um, what it actually looks and feels like. 
Um, and I think that because a lot of scholars, have, a lot of um, people coming into comic studies nowadays are coming from literary studies, they're, they're not necessarily always equipped to talk about this. So, um, for example, people, like one point I make in the chapter is that people often talk um, about the page in Fun Home with the, the giant picture of, of, um, of Roy the babysitter. And, it's, and in the printed book, it's at the very centerfold of the book, and that has some, um, it's this two-page spread that's, that's totally devoted to this, this photograph of one of the, the teenage boys that the author's father was had been having sex with. And it's kind of the... Um, this, this shocking moment in the book, and in the printed edition, it happens right at the center of the book. And, mm-hmm. um, but it, but in the uh, in the digital edition, you can't tell where in the book it is. And there's all these other subtle differences between one edition and another, and it's it's it's, further, it's interesting further because Fun Home is also a book that. Uh, now, have you read this book? Yes, I have. Okay, yeah. So so this, so fun and so Fun Home um, includes a lot of material, a lot of discussion of books, like the author, real like the author, right. father. Really love books, and they both refer to books a lot. And so, um, you can kind of compare the book to compare Fun Home the book itself to what it says about books. And this is a method that that I try to do a few times throughout the book, like with um, also with with, with uh, Chris Ware's Building Stories, mm-hmm. um, final chapter to um, sort of compare the, um, the um, what the book says about books, what it actually does with its own, about with its own physical format. Um, this is a trick that I sort of that I learned from um, one, one of the scholars who influenced me, who is um, Catherine Hales, who has this method that she calls media-specific analysis, which means reading literary texts from the perspective of, of their materiality, what they look and feel like, and, and how that interacts with, with their content and, and messages they're sending. Isn't that kind of necessary when analyzing comics, though? I mean, when you talk about the literary professors, and I'm sure one of the reasons they love Fun Home is because it both celebrates books and celebrates literature. But one of my concerns about some of the academic analysis is it's kind of reductivist. It tends to focus more on the literary aspects of a work than the visual verbal blend of the work. Yeah, so this is a, this is a problem with a lot of uh, uh, this is a difficulty with uh, that, that often comes up in comic studies is that um, people who write about comics sometimes feel more comfortable talking about them from a literary than a visual perspective. Um, because just because comics because comic studies mostly come out of English departments, and um, as a result of that, there's a certain tendency to neglect the visual and um, even just the visual aspect of comics, let alone things like lettering and um, and coloring and publication design, things you don't normally pay attention to when you when you read literary texts. I think people have, I, and I think that that this the situation has been changing, and people have been getting better about this, but. But it still does. But it still does happen sometimes. That, um, and I think that for that for scholars who are coming to literature from having analyzed, um, I mean, who are coming to comics from um, having primarily been literary scholars, it is necessary to do some sort of reorientation and to um, and to actually train yourself to, to read um, to read comics visually. Now you come to comics as a reader, so do you feel like you have maybe different sorts of insights than some of your peers have? Uh, possibly. So I definitely came to comics as a fan. Like I was a comics fan before I even thought of studying comics um, in, in an academic way. I've, I've been reading comics since I was seven years old, and I've been actively involved in fandom since um, since college when I started working for well, really earlier than that because I was a moderator at Comic Book Resources. Yeah. Um, so I am coming from kind of a fan perspective. Um, now that perspective also has its own problem because a lot of comics scholars also. Um, 
also come from fandom, and there's um, and that can also lead to certain biases. Like sometimes people who who are writing about comics primarily as fans will tend to like like one thing that can happen when you do that is, is you, that you overvalue the sort of comics that um, that fans tend to like, and you tend to ignore the uh, other kinds of comics. Like um, so, for, so like in like in fan writing about comics, obviously there's kind of over there's often an overemphasis on superheroes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's someone who I, I I've written several comic histories, the American Comic Chronicles, the uh, '70s and the '90s, and that was one of the balancing acts I needed to make sure to include in there is not just write about superhero comics, not just write about indie comics in creating like a survey type book about comics, but be able to discuss the full spectrum of the art form, and it really kind of is reinforced to me this need to kind of be agnostic about the material presented and be much more focused on the kind of two-dimensionality of the work. Uh, so one of the questions I had was um, you talk in Fun Home about um, the perceived personal approach of handwriting versus typewriting. And I'm curious to, to hear you elaborate on that, especially since I tend to think of an artist's line work as being very particularly reflective of them. Um, I think you talk later in the book also about how you can feel the hand of the artist uh, in the abstracted sense in the work you read. And uh, I'm curious if you feel like something gets lost when um, that work becomes digitized. Yeah, I could, that's, so that's, that's a really important question. Um, and I should say first, I think that um, comics really does have this this kind of handwritten and hand-drawn feel to it, uh, to them, and that's one thing that um, that attracts me to comics is the variety of different styles and the different ways that different artists draw. And I often tend to like artists who have a very um, distinctive and very ha- style that looks very handwritten, like um, like Kevin Huizenga, for example, who mm-hmm. I, um, I don't, I, I forget if I mentioned him in the book, but I talk about him in some of my other work, or even Randall Monroe, that's KCD. Um, at the same time, it's also important to recognize that that what you get in comics is never the actual handwriting of the artist. Like when you read a Jack Kirby comic, it's not actually Jack Kirby's handwriting on the page. It's um, or Jack Kirby's pen, it's not actually Jack Kirby's pencil line on the page. It's Jack Kirby's um, hand drawings filtered through whoever the inker was at the time, um, which could often be very which often make the artwork look very different. I was just having a discussion on Facebook about like about the effect of inkers on Kirby's artwork. And then it's not only and then but then that the inked artwork gets further filtered through the printing process and the coloring and all these layers of mediation. And I kind of say that as sort of a corrective to um, some other scholars who might tend to assume that, that comics is pure is a is a more is like sort of a pure handwritten medium because it's really not. It's like in comics, you've got you've got the, the, the artist's handwritten line, but it's always you always encounter it through multiple layers of, of media, mm-hmm. of, of mediation and intervention. Even um, unless you're looking at original, unless you're looking at original artwork, uh, and that's never the, and that's usually not the form in which the comic is intend, is intended to be seen. So um, now, so when when comics are done digitally, and this is something that I was kind of hoping to get into in a future project, and it hasn't really happened yet, but, when, but I do think that when comics are produced digitally, it does introduce this extra layer of mediation that some are, that, that some artists might not like, and um, it happens at both the level of, of um, creation and at the level of reading. Like, for example, lots of artists nowadays draw with walk-on tablets, and um, 
I haven't really looked. I haven't really had the time to look into this further, but I would imagine that that changes the the, the drawing process quite a lot, and it, and it also means that the artist might not be able to make an additional profit from selling original art, which is a big revenue stream for a lot of artists. Right. Um, I was actually talking to. I, I did a, um, an email interview with Kevin Ovizanga, uh, who I just mentioned a while ago, and um, and he said how he tends to like edit his work a lot digitally after he draws it, and. And as a result, he hasn't he hasn't been able to sell original art, or sometimes or like sometimes people will, will ask him for the original art of a page, and he has to to tell them there there that there isn't one. Um, so it does introduce this complication when comics are when um, comics are being produced digitally. Um, and at the same time, that that's that's kind of always been the case because comics have always been um, intimately linked to the technology that was used to produce them. Like if you go back to the 19th century, the the comics strip the, the comic strip form was basically invented as a way to um as kind of a killer app or a way to demonstrate uh, the new printing technologies they were developing and it was like a, a way to demonstrate the color printing capabilities of the, of the um of the newspaper's printing presses and so so comics have always been a tech so so comics are always a um or almost always a hand um a hand-drawn and handwritten medium but they're also always a technological medium. and that's one of the fascinating things about them hmm yeah, they they are always kind of plugged into the, to the latest technologies. It's just that uh, we've really been embracing digital over the last twenty years, and that's become it's, it's evolved to become a crucial technology. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the people who you talk about in the book, who I felt like you criticized a bit, was Linda Berry. Um, uh, did, did you mean to portray her as a luddite asking her? folks to create work by hand? Do you feel like she was a little bit behind um, in the way that people, uh, students especially, embrace technology now? Or do you feel like that well, she offers an interesting alternative? Yeah, I mean, I, I, may, have been a bit, I may have been a bit harsh on her book, and it's kind of hard to criticize it. Like, kind of, again, like, the nice thing about doing comic studies is that, is that, you know, there, is that um, the artists are, are, are the creators are easy to access, and it's also they also tend to have to, to talk and publish a lot about their work. Mm-hmm. It, also, it also makes me feel guilty when I say that <laughs> because because I do I do deeply respect Linda Berry's work. I think that her artwork is beautiful, um, and it does have this deeply evocative quality. Like that's why I think that's what that, I, I think I gestured to that when I talk about um, receiving her my, my copy of Linda Berry's syllabus and just seeing. Um, Realizing that it actually looked like the same kind of notebook that I used to have when I was a child. Um, at the same time, I think there's also this sort of technological not. I think that um, Linda Berry's position on technology does have, it does involve a certain sort of nostalgia. Like, and I see this a lot in. Um, it is, this is a common discourse that comes up in academia, where academics will be like, "Oh, oh, oh students have to put their phones away in class," or because it's terrible for discussion and conversation. And I think that the end. I think it's true that that digital technology does have certain does have certain um, negative impacts, and it does tend to lead to in like. Um, for example, and I talk, I think I talk about this a bit in the book, the excessive use of digital technology in class is often seen as harmful and, improb- and it probably is. And as like as a teacher, I can, I've probably seen, I've, I've seen that a lot, I'm sure. But, um, at the same time, that same time, I think it's important not to see digital technology as some kind of a boogeyman because, um, because it's not, go- because it's not going anywhere and because there's always been, 
there's all there's always been suspicion of new te- new technology, and that goes back literally to the invention of writing. Like in one of the like in one of Plato's dialogues, he has Socrates complain about how writing is um, is is inferior to how written language is, is inferior to to um, to the spoken word. Right. So I so but, but I do think that there is uh, but I do think that this Linda Barry's work is very is it, very valuable and important. It's just not it's just like um, I don't necessarily I I just don't necessarily take all of her claims at face value. Yeah, she so to give a little context to people who might not be aware, so she published a book called Syllabus, excuse me, which which uh, grew out of her college studies in which she uh, asked her class to fill up a composition notebook with all their thoughts, ideas, and expressions at the beginning and end of each day with the idea that they would fill up several school-style syllabuses uh, with this information. And what struck me about that, and I, I'm, uh, I'm in my 50s, uh, I work in the computer industry, and the vast majority of what I take down is on my laptop or on my iPhone or iPad or whatever. Um, I just don't do that much writing. There is a power to the corporeality of writing, uh, which I see frequently. But I think that approach that asks people not to take notes on their phone or whatever um, really dismisses the way that people kind of create this melded world that they live in today. Like so, for example, I was at the uh, yeah, or like I was at my, my college's post office yesterday. And there was a sign at the counter that said um, how they, they gave instructions for addressing an envelope. And I asked the um, the clerk, like, do most do most do, do a lot of students need to know, need that information? Do, do a lot of students need to be told, um, or do a lot of students not know how to address an envelope? And he said most of them don't. Huh. So, um, of course, <laughs> because postal mail is becoming much less common, yeah. less common compared to email. So. And I think that there, but I think there is a lot of value in the, um, in the written word. And like, um, there, there have been studies that, sh- like, I think that there have been studies that show that, that show that handwriting is more effective for taking notes, or that it can be more effective for taking notes than, um, than, um, and typing, uh, yeah. Typing, yeah, sorry. And that, um, and I have a colleague, Margaret Galvan, who takes these beautiful, um, handwritten notes when uh, in multiple colors of ink when she uh, goes to conferences and, she's, and she often posts them on Twitter. What I, I, I think what I, what I object to is the attitude that, that says that, um, that, hand, that that handwritten media or ha- handwriting is always necessarily better than, than typing because, mm-hmm. um, because, there are, because I think it's necessary to have sort of a more balanced attitude. Just, or like if you just um, kind of lump together everything that, that people could possibly be doing on their phones is equally lacking in value. I think that's equally bad. Like, um, I see this in, um, in some books that just say that, like, um, that, that, that just say that, like, that the technology is bad for kids or whatever without really considering, um, the differences between, between different uses of technology. Like, um, because that, because they, they don't all have, because, like, there's, because digital technology incorporates a lot, includes a lot of different things that all have, diff, um, that they have a lot of different effects. Yeah, I I kind of I, I really like your Plato analogy because it seems like every generation complaining about the previous generations or the next generation's habits in one way or another. And I think um, what happens over time is that everyone adjusts to this different way of perceiving the world. And I think we we were just always going through this generational transition. It just happens more rapidly now than it ever has before because of the way the technology moves on. 
Yeah, and so yeah, definitely, and that's um, and um, it's like there's this constant state of crisis, and like even I, as a um, you know, I'm not I, like I still don't feel that old, but I still, but I like I'm I'm maybe like um, a decade or two older than my students, and even I have, and even they often have technological capabilities that I don't. Right. Um, although it's not always a generational thing, like my. Um, my mentor, Donald, who recently passed away, was a was a very traditional scholar who, I think, he got his PhD in the late sixties or seventies, and yet he also founded the uh, the first academic journal on comics to be published out of a out of a university English department, and it ended up being a digital journal uh, with a totally digital interface because that was because that ended up being the most um, efficient way to do it. Yeah, well, and and like I love technology, but I'm fascinated by like the the biggest. Techn- biggest new technology that's emerged in the last five years is podcasts to me um, because we've seen it grow from being this kind of niche thing to something that's really starting to get more and more pervasive in society and it, it's fascinating because that's a long it's a long form medium if you do it right it's an area for conversation it's an area that allows for connection in a world where we are always complaining about connection being so ephemeral I guess there's, there's just always this kind of this two-headed coin to any technology. Like you, I've been fascinated by how web comics, which proposed to be a purely digital medium, have become this very pervasive force in print comics. Um, especially with Kickstarter, it just seems like they have it's become the number one area that gets got strong Kickstarter funding. And I'm curious how you see that phenomenon evolving. Um. I think it's going to continue to be a major impact. A major, um, it's going to continue to have a major impact in the comics industry. I think um, one thing that, that's kind of fascinating about Kickstarter is just the way that it radically expands the field of comics. Because, like, I'm sure there's a lot of comics out there that, that I've never even heard of, just because I'm not because they're they're coming out of like um, fan circles I'm not aware of, or because I'm or because I'm not following Kickstarter actively. Um, so one impact, like one impact of things like Kickstarter is there's not just one comic industry anymore. There's a bunch that are that, that only sometimes um, inter- interact or, or um, intersect. And Kickstarter also makes it a lot easier for um, for marginalized for creators from marginalized groups to uh, to get their voice out. Yeah. Um, and I think that even the even the big companies have become aware of this. Like I remember there's an artist named. Um, Hannah Blumenreich, I think, who did this. Yeah, there, so there's so there's an artist Hannah Blumenreich who um, did these spite these unauthorized Spider-Man web comics that that, that kind of that went viral. And then Marvel actually hired her to do an issue of Spider-Gwen. Um, so so these different um, categories or, or areas of comics often um, intersect. Or like another example I might have put in the book is Ngozi Okazu's um, Check Please, which is a web which is um, um, a, a gay hockey, a, a web comic about gay hockey players, mm. and um, it's something that that would have been difficult to even imagine in the, in the pre-internet era. But it got, um, but the print version was published by I forget who now, but it was it was, um, but it was published it was published by some by by, um, by a major publisher, and it was funded by Kickstarter. Um, so I think that all the trends that, that I, I discussed in that chapter of the book have become. Um, have continued it, but have become even more um, significant. Why do you think XKCD is so much of an outlier compared to its peers? Is it imagination? Is it the scope of what they're creating? 
I don't know, but X um, somehow um, is an outlier in one sense. Well, just that they're really exploiting the kind of three-dimensional space that you're able to get to in a web browser. Yeah, so I think that, um, again, I think as I say in the book, there are certain barriers to um, to doing web comics comics that that push the boundaries of print too much because that means that, by by definition, that means that they can't be um, be published. That makes it difficult to publish them in form, and then they lose the channel of, of monetization. There's also a question as to how much a comic can be can take advantage of digital technology while still continuing to be a comic. Like, there's this ongoing debate, for example, about whether motion comics really are comics, or whether they're, um, because they're all, because they all, it often seems like they're a hybrid of comics, they're like um, a combination of a bad comic and a bad animated film, and they don't, and they don't <laughs> like, they try to be both, like, they, they try to be both comics and, and animated films, um, and don't succeed at being either. And I, I know there are, and, uh, I'm not really well informed about this, and there are, there are other scholars like Drew Morton who've written about this a lot more. But, um, so with XKCD, it may be, it may be significant that they, that you only do really experimental stuff like a couple times a year, and the majority of XKCD comics are, are basically Christian comic strips. Yeah. With that. With I forget that. if I say this in the, in the book. I forget if I say that in the book, but I think that also it's likely that a lot of when comic artists grew up reading newspaper comic strips rather than comic books, and therefore, for this audience, kind of the standard way to organize a comic is to have like a, is to have like a three to four panel strip, and not a page with three or four tiers of panels. You yep. can see this in, in Raina Telgemeier's um, sister, which I'm probably going to talk about in the next book, where she says that she has herself as a child say that she likes comic strips like For Better or For Worse and Farside and, and Selling Hobbs. And then some some boy tells her those aren't real comics, right? So yeah, so, so there's this. So I think that a lot of like I think that a lot of web comic stars may be influenced by types of by other types of comics besides um, uh, besides comic books. Although that's not the question you asked. That's a, that's okay. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, because I think there is something about like the four panel comic that's very satisfying too. It's a it's a format that's easy to fall into, but infinitely challenging as a creator. Yeah, and also historically, um, yeah, um, comic strips were so. I mean, historically, comic strips were the most um, prestigious form of comic. Yeah, but it was also a market that was extremely difficult to break into. Uh, and I think that the uh, excuse me, so, so the rise of web comics allowed a lot of cartoonists to basically publish their own comic strips, which is impossible to do in, in print unless you get really lucky. Yeah, yeah, or have a deep uh, bank account, or unless your father was, a, was, a, was already a cartoonist. Yeah, true. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about uh, from the book was your discussion of Chris Ware's building stories which was very intriguing to me because where is another one a little bit like Linda Berry, who he doesn't really trust or like the digital format, but in a way he's created a manual hypertext document, which is just so intriguing and so artful. Uh, it really fits into its own category. Yeah. And the, and the strange thing is there, there is, that there, there's, um, there's, there is definitely this, this long history of, print books that are kind of like did that they either sort of prefigure or the digital or that replicate certain features of it. For example, um, 
like uh, I, like I think Chris Weir mentioned, um, he's talked about this book, uh, The Untouchables, I think, by B.S. Johnson, which I haven't read myself, and it's just a good kind of similar format to building stories, or like, um, or and like one one text that's commonly cited as as a, as a precursor to hypertext, or as a way of thinking about, as a way of thinking about hypertext is. Um, is Jorge Luis Borges' The Garden of Fortune Paths, which is which is um, a prose story that was that was published in I think during World War II, but I forget when. Um, nineteen forty. Okay, yeah, it was published in nineteen forty one. Um, okay, or like game or, or like game books, for example, are are print which I talk about in the discussion of meanwhile, are a print form that, that prefigures hypertext or a print form that works very much like a video game in some ways. So, um, so, so it's, it's an example in like building stories is an example of how the print digital divide is not as, as sharp as it sometimes appears to be because there are certain texts that, that include um, attributes of both at once. But, um, yeah, the, and then the other thing about the, the other weird thing about building stories is that it includes the section that was originally published as a, um, a webcomic on the McSweeney app and it includes some digital functionality. And I think that, I believe I quoted Chris Ware as saying that that was an unsuccessful experiment and he only did it because, um, because they wanted him to do it. But still, I think it's, it's kind of fascinating the way it works. Yeah, I, it made me want to check it out because it sounds so intriguing. Now you played with it, right? Um, and it was a, it's an yeah. interesting experience as you describe it. Yeah. But then the other, the other weird thing about Chris Weirdly, I, I think that his work often has a sort of machine and mechanical level of perfection to the point where it's often hard to even perceive the, the human hand behind it because he draws so, because like, because he draws them with such perfection, such precision. Right. And yet he's, and he's using, digital technology to simulate uh, manual technology from earlier times in the century, earlier times in the yeah. 20th century, which um, is this fascinating paradox. Yeah. Or like another example of similar paradoxes, like if you read old um, EC or Wonder Woman comics, they, 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 they look like they have typewritten lettering, um, but it was actually handwritten lettering. It was done with a Leroy device, but it was meant to, which was meant to produce letters of uniform width and size, basically with a stencil that was operating by hand. You know, I'm talking about the lettering old details. Yeah, actually, I, I interviewed um, one of the packagers of the Fanographic CC okay. Artist Collection, and we talked actually for about five minutes about Leroy lettering. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I'll send you a link to that. It's fascinating. Oh, cool. Such an obscure little area of uh, scholarship. Oh, so another text that I discussed in the book is um, is Jason Shigas Meanwhile, and he's kind of continuing to do these these really kind of fascinating and, and bizarre experiments. I think that um, that's something in, like, um, this idea of a choose-your-own-adventure comic, I think there, there have been other attempts at that since the book was published. Like, um, Ryan North did a... Yeah. Choose your own adventure issue of Squirrel Girl, and um, I think Squirrel Girl was mostly after the book was written. But if I was going to like go back and revise it, I might want to talk to him some more because he's an example of a cartoonist who who came to, to print comics from um, from web comics and, and who uses a lot of devices for web comics in his um, in his in his print comics, like those little um, notes at the bottom of the page in Squirrel Girl. How so? In Squirrel Girl, most pages have. Um, a little message at the bottom, usually some kind of an ironic commentary on the on what's happening on that page, and 
that's basically a digital a print version of the alt text web comics where you hover over the web, where you hover over the, um, the text on the comic and, and some kind of an ironic message appears. I looked at that a little bit, but I can't remember if I published anything about it. So that's another, that's another example of how, um, how print comics are sort of, are sort of imaging web comics. Um, but Squirrel Girl also, also fits into the story I want to tell the current book project. I might talk about this later. Okay. Um, so, um, moving away from the book, how do you see, have your student, you've been teaching for how many years? Probably, probably about 12 years, I think. How do you see the perception of students of comics and the comics medium changing in a decade? Well, it really depends on which students. Like, I was at Georgia Tech before, um, in my, for my first job after grad school, I think the comics, that, that students there, um, tended to be very, tended to be very friendly to comics, um, because a lot of them were coming from, were, were, um, a lot of them were coming from sort of a, from the background of geek or nerd, or nerd culture. Um, so then at my next job at the university, um, at Miami University in Ohio, I encountered a very different um, student body that, that I think tends to be more um, more allied to to traditional literature. And I just started teaching comics at my current job at UNC Charlotte. Um, and the first time I did it, it was a bit of a challenge because I was working with this new. Um, it was this, this new um, liberal studies course framework that I had never taught before. And I think that, um, I think the key thing that's changing, though, is that students tend to be familiar with comics culture, if not with comics themselves, um, because, things, because things like the Black Panther movie have become so culturally uh, ubiquitous, like, seem like practically, like I'm guessing that probably the majority of my students have seen the Black Panther movie. So, you know, I think that in my next, um, the next time I teach this comics class, I want to, um, Emphasize. I want to um, try to draw upon that when, in one way or another, as a way of getting students interested in comics. Um, I think one thing that probably has changed in, um, you know, in, in just in my in, in my lifetime is, is that the the, the the stigma that that formerly existed about comics is probably no longer nearly as strong. Like um, it used to be taken for granted that, that comics were. were were not respectful and that people didn't want and that um, no one wanted to publicly admit to reading comics. And that perception still exists probably among some older generations, but I don't think the students today are growing up with the same perception that comics are, that, that uh, comics are, um, are um, a lesser form of art. But another thing I think is going to change over time, and, I, I'm, and again, this intersects with my next book project, is that... Um, in a couple of years, I'll, I'll have students who grew, who grew up reading young adult graphic novels, things like uh, like um, Rainer Telgemeier's books or Dan Pilkey's Dog Band. And so, um, at that point, they're all they're going to come into class with these perceptions about comics. That um, number one, they'll be used to reading comics, but number two, their perceptions about comics will be very different from from the ones that I grew up with. Yeah, yeah, and that's always very exciting. Also, is that the, the perception just changes generationally. Um, yeah, you were you probably still vaguely remember newspaper comics from when you were growing up. The current generation oh, has no yeah. idea what those are, right? Definitely, yeah. I remember reading Calvin and Hobbes on the first time when they were still coming out. My students still know about Calvin and Hobbes, but they probably, but unless they're unless they're um, older, non-traditional students, they'll only have encountered reprints or or on the internet. And yeah, that that's just the nature of the beast is that every generation is different. Um, I like to think of my 
generation, my sticking with comics really is being a sign of the medium's growth. Um, Cause I read comics when I was a kid. Um, when I got to high school, uh, there were comics that were first emerging that were good comics to read when you were in high school, uh, more, more uh, adult, more compelling. It's when Frank Miller was going strong on daredevil, for instance, when I got to college, I discovered Harvey Pekar, Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, and those were comics that were great, uh, you know, uh, college age comics. And then when I became uh, truly an adult, was when the graphic novel boom really started happening. So basically, the medium grew with me, which is why I've had such loyalty to it because it's really been kind of a reflection of how my life has grown and changed. Yeah, for me, it was a bit different. I think that, like, so I started reading comics. So my dad read comics as a kid, so when I was about seven years old, he got me interested in them, too. Um, and I started out reading G.I. Joe and Transformers comics, but this was about, like, 90, 92 or 93, which was at the middle of the, the, the boom of the late 80s and early 90s. And so this was a time when, when lots of other kids in my school were also reading comics. Yeah. And somehow I can then... Uh, most of those kids basically gave up on reading comics after the um, after the comics bubble ended in around like ninety five or ninety six. But I just kept re- I just kept reading comics, and eventually um, I started to develop more of an academic interest in them. Um, ironically, it was partly because I was reading Wizard magazine. Wizard often had references. Wizard it was a terrible magazine. Most <laughs> also had some covers of older comics or, or underground or independent comics. So I was at least exposed. To, at least I was exposed to that sort of thing a little bit. Yeah, I was going to ask how you got into comic scholarship. Yeah, so, I, um, I've, all, so I've always been interested in comics, and I ended up in, in college, I majored in comparative literature, art history. Um, I think I was originally going to be an English major, but there were some, some um, intro classes I really didn't want to take. Um, and so then I think it was like, it was when I was doing my it was doing, when I was doing my BA thesis that I started to seriously consider the idea of, 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 study, of actually writing a thesis about comics and trying and trying to study comics. And eventually, it became clear that this was what I was most interested. In, that this was what I was most interested. In, excuse me, Baron um, I was also like learning a lot about comics from being from being an active participant in, in comic book resources and going to Comic Con and working for Comic Book Arts magazine. So I was sort of immersed in this hobby already. And um, so then when I when I applied for my and then when I applied for my MA program, I, I studied with with Ana Marino, who um, who was a scholar of comics and also a Spanish language poet. Um, this was when she was at Dartmouth, and. And then she she kind of encouraged me to go to the University of Florida, which was where which was at the time the only basically the only place in in the, in the country where you could do a that specifically had a PhD concentration in, in comic studies, and that was thanks to the influence of, of, of Donald Alt, who became my mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even in grad school, I kind of felt the obligation to study other things like specifically media like media studies and game studies. And I'm still interested in those things, but, but, but it still felt like I couldn't really do just comic studies because there, were, there weren't going to be any jobs in that field, and, there, and there really, that's really still a problem there because there still aren't a whole lot of jobs in it. The thing that has happened, though, is the comic studies have become much more professionalized. Like, um, So now there's the uh, the Comic Studies Society with its annual, annual conference, and there are regular comics panels at, at national academic conferences like the MFA. And national academic conferences like the MLA, the, the modern the modern language. So, but yeah, but yeah, like what? Um, 
the thing that's ha- the, 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 the thing that exists now that didn't really exist when I was um, an undergrad or when I was a grad student is, is kind of this organized this nowadays there's this whole, there's this whole group of scholars who are um, who are interested in, who, who are studying comics and who are getting professionally involved in comic studies um, and we all go to the same comic and like um, these these um, some junior scholars and I we all, we all go to the same conferences and hang out together and it creates a sense that this is an actual field um, and it's not just a few like a few isolated people I also think that the, the level of rigor and professionalism in the field has gotten a lot higher and there's a lot more there's also a lot more pub, uh, stuff being published in common studies like there, there used to be just a couple journals um, but now there's like now there's a bunch of uh, academic journals about comics there's, there's a number of different academic presses that are doing um, up there, they're doing um, lines of, of scholarly books on comics, right. so it's become much more. It's become much more of, um, a well-developed field, and that's something that, that has changed a lot since I was um, since I was in school. Um, what's your next book? You alluded to it a bit. Yeah, so the project I'm working on now is um, the tentative title is "Comics Are for Everyone," and I was actually just working on the proposal for that this morning. Um, so the idea is that um, the college landscape in the last, just over the past decade has been shifting radically um, thanks to a whole bunch of different things, including comic book movies and um, manga, the manga boom and uh, the rise in the graphic novel. And it's gotten to the point where, where what, we, what we think of as mainstream comics has really become marginal. And the new mainstream is, and, and the new mainstream is really young adult graphic novels like like works of Raina Talgamir yeah. and Kazu Kibuishi and artists like that and we still have this attitude that I talked about in a conference paper um, a couple of years ago as direct market centrism where we assume that direct market comics are still are still like like the the, the heart of the comics industry when really it seems like the comics industry is evolving in very different directions and we're not really and we're not really prepared to, to think about that so kind of the idea in this book, and I'm still sort of thinking about how this is going to work exactly, but it might going to talk about. But the idea is to think about like why, like how the comic industry is changing and how this happened, why, and to sort of tell the history of, of like why comics. First of all, why did comics stop being for kids, and then why do they start, and why did comics um, start to exclude female readers, and then why did com- and how did comics get to be for kids again? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot that, that there's a lot of different parts of the story that haven't yeah. been told. For example, like Jeff Smith's Bone and, and how like how did that like um, that was really the, the key work in proving that in proving that, that there was an audience for kids comics and it really started Scholastic's um, graphics line, which has become I would say the dominant force in the comics market today. Like what like why but like why did it happen when it did and why didn't it happen earlier? Or another. Um, Another um, book chapter I'm working on, on now for an edited anthology from I forget who the publisher is, but I'm working on, on a chapter for an editor an edited anthology now that's about called the Other Eighties, edited by um, by Brian Kremens and Brandon Costello. And um, my chapter for that is about about DC's Eighties comics, Amethyst and, and Angel Love, yeah, and how how and more broadly about how publishers. Um, in the 80s, made these uh, these kind of half-hearted efforts to reach out to to female to, to female readers, specifically to to um, adolescent girls. And I'm trying to ask, like, number one, 
why didn't these efforts succeed? But also a more interesting question is is like how could they like what were the comics industry looked like if they had succeeded or um, what does or like what do these comics tell us about the comic industry that that we haven't been aware of? Like one thing I realized when I was researching this chapter is that um, from is that on the on the um, comics fans and creators have always been predominantly male. Kind of on the back end of the comics publishing scene, there's always been all these been um, it's always been a very female business. Like there, there are all these these very influential female editors like Karen Berger and Louise Simonson and and, and publishers like Jeanette Kahn and, and lots of other people who um, who have who, who have often been seen as just like just footnotes to to, to male creators. But what if we tried to but like what if we reoriented our understanding of comics history so that figures like these became more um, Became, became more central to the field, so I'm basically trying to, to, to suggest a way to rethink com a way to rethink comics so that it's not all about the direct market and, and about superheroes, and it's more about and so and, and I want to try to understand how like the current um, boom of comics for, for girls and, and for younger readers and for, and for women and for younger readers is not is it's sort of a historical discontinuity, but it's also it's also an extension of, of things that have, happened, that have been happening already that we haven't necessarily been paying attention to. That's a... Oh, that sounds very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually a fan of that Angel Love comic because it's so strange. Yeah, I agree. It's a very strange comic. And I was reading some. I was reading some reviews at the time that, that were published at the time. My editor sent to me and that that were very negative and compared it un, unfavorably to Love and Rockets. But yeah. I don't think that's necessarily. I don't think that's. I don't think that's necessarily a fair comparison uh, because Love and Rockets is not intended for younger readers. Well, no, and there, especially in the mid eight, early to mid eighties, there was this kind of fetishization of Love and Rockets because it was held up as the potential example of where comics could go. And I think there's, yeah. there was this tendency early on to really kind of overanalyze books in comparison with that. Uh, it got more normalized in the, in the next 10 years or so, but um, especially early eighties crit is a lot about, you know, this isn't as good as love and rockets. Well, you could say that about 98% of all comic art. Yeah, and, and I remember, um, and one of the first couple of Comic-Cons I attended, Michael Shabbat gave a keynote address to the Eisners where he talked about how um, there was this whole literary graphic, there was this whole literary graphic novel boom and it was like inflating profile comics and as a result, um, more adults were, were reading more and better comics than ever before. But then he went on to add and far fewer people, but far fewer people overall. Yeah. And he went on to basically cascade the industry for, um, for failing children, for not, for not publishing comics and appeal to children. And since then, I think that 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 um, so so Marvel and DC have have and other the other commercial the other comic book publishers have responded to that call to a sort of to sort of limited extent. And so so now Marvel is publishing titles like um, like Squirrel Girl and Runaways and Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. But at the same time, but but, but the but the, re, but the real like boom in the industry is coming from traditional book publishers that already have these um, these very well-developed um, notions of how to market books to children, and they're just kind of inserting comics into that, into that whole um, distribution circuit. 
like one of the main reasons why kids graphic novels have become so popular is because Scholastic has been selling them at school book fairs, which are attended by millions of children. Right. So Telgemeier has a reach that really no one else has, um, especially because parents always feel obligated to buy two or three things for their kids when they go to these fairs. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting how the market's evolving. That sounds like really interesting scholarship. I'd be, I'd enjoy reading that. And another thing I've been interested in is how um, traditional fans have responded to this. I'm also interested in the, the whole the, the, the diversification of the industry and again attempts to um, to court um, readers who are not straight the straight white men who are traditionally the target audience of comics. So, for example, one thing I wrote that might um, become part of the book was, was an analysis of, uh, analysis of uh, Kamala Khan, his Marvel, and, and how she expresses how this compares to how this um, compares to the sort of people who, who Marvel is targeting for comic at. I'm also interested in the backlash that's resulted from traditionally from the, the from traditionally enfranchised readers. So like I've been following so I've been following Comic Gate and like I think that the idea behind Comic that what's happening with Comic Gate is that a lot of um, um, fans who are um, basically older white men who would read comics all their lives, kind of like, kind of like you see, I would guess, is, um, they see the comics as being produced by people other, by, for people other than them, and that they're no longer the sole target audience for comics, and then they're like, oh my god, you're, you're ruining my childhood, um, or these comics all suck, it's, you, um, every comic should, every comic needs to be like Watchmen or Dark Knight Returns or whatever. Um, so that led to this, um, Backlash, which is also which is really kind of become an organized harassment campaign, like um, much like Gamergate. And so, for for a, pen, for a paper, I just gave that um, at um, um, the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts. I had to dig into this rather deeply. It was kind of creepy experience. Oh, I can imagine. Oh, that that whole thing just just upsets me so much. Yeah, but it's also it also kind of tells you about the sorts of assumptions people make about comics and why those assumptions and like what people implicitly and like what people implicitly think about comics even if they can't even if they um they don't really want to say it yeah yeah true i think it just is also people i i just perceived as this reactionary approach to the world that says you know keep comics great again for one of a better phrase yeah exactly yeah, it's this idea that... Um, Make comics. You know, or there's this old there's again. This common saying nowadays that when you're accustomed to... When, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Yeah. So they, like, made it seem like they, like they're the ones who are being wronged. Yeah. Well, it sucks to be them then because the, the medium's changing and you have to appreciate that. Uh, there's... You talked a little bit about how comics are a unique connection. You know, we perceive it as being our, uh, seeing this person's lines on paper and they speak kind of directly to you. And I always felt like comics were like music, this intimate art form that allows for a connection you can't get otherwise. Um, and that just makes it especially powerful when you're talking about issues around oppression or personal growth or just 
you know, the, 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 the autobiographical approach to the world is um, uniquely powerful in comics and it's not going to go away. Oh, and um, well, I just think that it's a particularly intimate art form like music. And because of that, people are going to continue to share their own personal view of the world in comic form. And it's not going to be changing. That's going to continue to be a thing. Yeah, there's always going to be, so there's always going to be this intimate reaction. I guess the flip side of that is that um, there's also the, is that it also leads to this feeling of entitlement, like oh, I I would um, I know um, like how dare you like oh you think that you think that, that you're a comics fan, but I've been a comics fan my entire life, and I'm a bigger comics fan. <laughs> or there's this notion that that if you're that if you if you claim to like comics and you you don't fit into the traditional comics demographic then you must be a big, big girl or something. Uh, yeah, we could do a we could do a whole uh, other hour on all that kind of stuff, Aaron. <laughs> um cool. Thank you for chatting with me today. This is really fun. Thanks. This is really interesting. Um, anyway, I'm glad you're interested in my book. I found it to be really intriguing. A lot of the ideas really kind of sparked some thoughts in my mind. Um, especially, yeah, it's just interesting to think of the, the kind of multi-level way of looking at Ware's work, especially just really, I found fascinating. Yeah, and, and again, this book is Between Pen and Pixel, published by Ohio State University Press. And it does have some fairly heavy academic language in it, but I also try to make it accessible for um, for general readers. And I do, I, do, I, and I do think this is a book that could appeal to people who are not academics, but who are interested in comics in general. Oh, thank you.